Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andre Karenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Lucas Bewald. Lucas Bewald is a co-founder of Weights and Biases, a company that creates developer tools for machine learning. Prior to that, he was a co-founder and CEO of Figure 8 Incorporated, also called Crowdflower before that, which is uh, an internet company that collects training data for machine learning and was sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, which is pretty cool. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Lucas. Yeah, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to uh, talk to you. Uh, yes, I'm excited as someone who tried to use weights and biases and always uh, admired its visualizations. I think uh, I'm curious to hear from you. Uh, and so as always, uh, we like to start by just asking how you first got into AI, got interested in it and you know learned of it and wound up working on it. Well, you know, honestly, the way I got interested in it was... Um, when I was a little kid, my um, my dad w- read me that book, Girdle Escher Bach, which is like mostly like way over <laughs> my head. As a kid, wow. And it was funny, I asked my dad about it. It was like pretty meaningful to me as a kid, but my dad was telling me, you know, he's actually a young um, parent and uh, mm. he said he had like no time to read the things that he wanted to read. And so he was just basically like trying to read um, a book that he was interested in. Um, but I think there's an interesting parenting lesson there, honestly, because it's a great parenting tip. Yeah. I didn't understand it, but I, I was like, I think the thing that I took away was, wow, that would be so interesting if, um, you know, you could make a computer learn to do something. And then I got really into the game, uh, go Mm. and uh, as a teenager and, and playing that game, you think a lot about how would you make a computer win at that, game. And so, you know, it's, it's funny. It's, it's like kind of obvious that the sort of like look ahead methods like won't work. And then you start thinking, okay, like how do I do it? How would I like encode that? And I got kind of obsessed with that. And I started working on, um, this GNU go project to make like a machine learning system for that. And I was at Stan- I was at Stanford at the time, um, studying math though. And I think like, like kind of thinking about those games and then, um, you know, the truth is, I was into it, but but I actually took took Daphne Kohler's intro to um, AI class, which was very very good. I mean, I think it's no mm. surprise those, those classes have gone so um, you know viral on the internet. Um, they're just really well done. You get really excited about it, and so then I um, I worked for for Daphne as like a research assistant, and um, you know got like super into it. And I think that was was that like an AI winter? I mean, that was back in the early aughts, and. Um, you know, it, like it wasn't so clear that things were working, but if you could dream a little bit, um, you know, the prospects felt um, amazing. And then I think, you know, Google and others came along and sort of showed that you could do really meaningful um, stuff with it. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, that's super fun. Uh, finding Go as an inspiration for anyone who doesn't play Go. Yeah, it's uh, famous, of course, for AlphaGo, but basically uh, to really play it well, you need to have some sort of intuition kind of thing. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. 
Uh, actually, I was just interviewing uh, Chip Huyan yesterday, and she also was inspired to get into AI by Stanford's Intro to AI course. So that's a fun note. Um, yeah, so that's cool. And uh, so you did some research with Daphne Kohler, and as someone who is, you know, relatively young, I'm kind of curious how that experience was in, you know, around 2003, 2004. Like, what did it look like to do AI research? And, you know, if you went to an AI conference, what was that like? Oh, yeah, it was totally different. Um, it was hard, actually. It was, um, it was frustrating doing actual AI research. Like, it wasn't as cool as, um, as it seemed like it was going to be. Mm. That's actually how I ended up starting Crowdflower was um, it felt like all the research was just based on the, the random data sets that happened to be labeled you know, by, by someone. And so, you know, there was this, um, LDC, the, um, linguist data consortium would, would label stuff. And it was really just kind of, it felt kind of random, like what, you know, linguists were interested in. So I was working on word sense disambiguation, which is kind of a contrived task. Honestly, it's sort of like deciding if like, you know, the word plant means plant, the living thing or plant, the, the power plant. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was trying to build these models. They were like, um, you know, Bayes nets uh, back then. And I was trying to kind of optimize them to sort of figure out the topic and figure out um, the sense of plant that, that I was looking at. And I thought I was um, succeeding in identifying the topic and then that was improving the score. And then I realized like heartbreakingly after like pulling a lot of all-nighters and like, you know, doing tons of work that I wasn't identifying the topic. I was identifying the person that was labeling um, <laughs> the document. And it was like, just like so frustrating. And then you realize like how much kind of human error goes into the labeling. And it's just like, man, there's got to be a, a better way. And I think that really planted the seed for starting um, Crowdflower just because, you know, the, the labels just felt like the, the most important thing driving all the research um, at the time. Maybe that's still... Uh, maybe, yeah. I think definitely people appreciate more now the importance of data set creation uh, to AI as a whole. Uh, yeah, and I found this interesting uh, to talk a bit more about the inspiration of um, Crowdflower. So you worked after uh, undergrad a couple of years on uh, an industry on uh, search engine stuff, so applied machine learning, which is also pretty interesting. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it, it was during that time also that uh, while working on you know, some problem, you you figured out that you would need some human kind of, uh, you know, the sort of thing you do with Mechanical Turk, some small kind of feedback on data. So, yeah, how did that uh, happen? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, I worked at, you know, Yahoo, which is like a bigger company doing search relevance. And I had this experience of, um, it was really fun. I was kind of rolling out this transition from, you know, old fashioned, um, you know, kind of hand tuned weights to ML systems. They were trees, gradient boosted trees, um, you know, back still then. Good, still a good technique. Still a great technique and, and robust and, and cool. And, but, you know, back then there was like no infrastructure. So I was literally like writing a translation from, you know, like dumping R and then like writing like C code, you know, like, like I was doing it and I was actually checking in the um, models you as like a compiler. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and it's funny because the, the engineers are just like, "Man, you're like so productive! Like you're like checking in like tons of lines of code." I actually think I checked in more code than like everyone else 
um, combined, you know, because I was like automatically, you know, generating it, but that was like, you know, how we did it at the time. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and then, um, you know, I, I remember when mechanical Turk launched, I was like, this is so cool. Cause I can like, you know, get all these like labels, which is just like, wow, I can like, now I can do like kind of any application. Cause I can get like labels in any topic. And I, I remember like the, just the key to success at, um, at grad school and at, at Yahoo. And then at a startup where I worked, was just making the the labels high quality. And so like, you know, it it felt really frustrating to have to kind of hand over the labeling process um, to someone else. And with Mechanical Turk, you could exactly control like what's the prompt that someone sees. You know, you could talk to the person, you could like iterate um, on that prompt. And it just sort of felt like, actually that's the most important thing that you could possibly be working on is like making that labeling process good. And so the thing I loved about Crowdflower is we, you know, kind of moved the control of the labeling process from like, you know, an outsourcing company or something like that, like into the hands of the actual, um, you know, ML practitioner that was responsible for building the models. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mechanical Torque launched, was it around like 2005, 2006? Yeah, that's right. Yep. I see. Yeah. This is interesting timing also, because if you look uh, kind of at the history of ImageNet, it was uh, some, sort of similar because it was ongoing and then they were trying to figure out how to label everything. And yeah. kind of a breakthrough was Mechanical Turk that really enabled ImageNet to happen. So in some sense, you like had the exact right intuition, right? Totally. I remember Feifei emailed me and she's like, hey, will you help me do this like labeling project? And I was like, you know, no, I'm like kind of busy with like crowdfunding. And like, you know, academics don't seem like a very good customer, but what a mistake, you know, it would have been so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been cool. But... I feel like I'd love to help you, but I, you know, I have this other thing going on. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what it's like. Yeah, so I guess for, for any listeners who haven't had the fun experience of collecting data sets or annotating things, could you give a bit more description of what, you know, more at a low level, concrete detail, would Crowdflower do or Mechanical Turk do if you wanted to connect a data set or some annotations or anything like that? Yeah, totally. I mean, so, you know, it really depends on the task. Um, but, you know, say you want to make like, you know, search engine work well, that's a really common task, right? The typical way to do that is you ask somebody like, hey, here's a search query and here's a result. You know, do you think this is like a relevant result or not? And the details really matter, right? Like, you know, you could say, is this relevant or not? You could say, you know, is this very relevant? You could have like a five point scale. You could like show like pairs of results and say like, which one's better. There's a ton of different ways to do it. And the particular ways you do it is actually maybe the most important decisions you're making in actually building um, the model. The downstream effects are huge. And actually, you know, you typically need to pay someone to do it, or at least you're like asking for somebody's time. And so, um, you know, depending on like, if you can, you know, convince that person to reliably um, annotate the results, like that's a really, um, you know, kind of key step too, right? Because if humans are involved, they're naturally going to make, um, you know, mistakes. You may have people that are confused. You may even have like bots, you know, getting in there and like messing up um, your results. And so a big thing that we did at um, Crowdflower that was kind of different than Mechanical Turk, like Mechanical Turk had this idea that, hey, we're going to build like a reputation system. And, you know, people can just sort of like, you know, kind of like Amazon reviews, just say, hey, this person did a good job or a bad job, right? Oh, and then right? like anyone, any person could sign up to be a Mechanical Turker with some very small verification and they can do like little tasks to get some money. Uh, yep. if, if, yeah. Yep. 
And I did, you know, I, I, I did. I set up. I never got around to doing anything, but I, I did set up. I mean, the thing that happened though, at the time, I think it still kind of happens is, is basically, um, the problem is that most people just, um, the, the only way to sort of like say if someone did a good job or a bad job, I may be, I'm a few years out of date, but I was like obsessed with this stuff. So until, you know, I sold the company a few years ago, you couldn't really say did someone do a bad job or a good job. You could just pay them or not pay them. And so like not paying someone is a pretty drastic measure that feels bad. Um, and so you basically end up um, paying everyone, like almost everyone would just pay everyone and kind of not worry about it. Maybe they would like internally like block them, but they wouldn't, you know, share that with other people. And so the reputation system really didn't um, work well. And so then, you know, there's like probably like a small number of people that were like scamming and they started to make more money and then they would get access to the good tasks. And it kind of led to this like thing where you know, a lot of people like asking for the labels or like upset and, you know, a lot of people doing labeling were upset. And so the idea behind Crowdflower was to say, um, you know, we're going to help you like automatically tell who's doing a good job and a bad job. Cause that's a kind of a complicated thing, right? Like you know, if you're asking somebody to label search tool as good or bad, you don't know if it's good or bad, right? So you can like ask multiple people to do it. You can like have one person do it and then another person check it kind of depending on what you're doing. There's different strategies that, um, you know, work better or worse, but that was like a real, um, you know, piece of technology that we worked super hard on at, at, at Crowdflower. And so what ended up happening is, you know, Mechanical Turk, you know, was really well known among um, researchers, but I think most companies that were um, crowdsourcing their annotation for training data were using um, Crowdflower. So, you know, we worked with thousands of um, ML teams to help them get um, uh, label data. And, and our, our real value prop was like, we're going to get you high quality um, <laughs> labeled data. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, to this day, you know, you will often encounter papers where they say, oh, we collected this data set. And the way we did that was we got Mechanical Turk, uh, you know, and this is the demographics. And often, from what I've seen, people include like dummy questions where it's just like an obvious, you know, yep. thing like pick pick option C just to check if the person is even looking at the questions. Yep. Yeah. So as you say, it's, it's a very kind of important problem. Yep. Totally. And, um, yeah, something I found interesting and I wonder if this was like uh, kind of a temporary thing or maybe actually a big deal was looking at some random article from like 2010 uh, that I happened upon. I found that uh, back then Facebook had all of these uh, games like Farmville, which are now ancient history. And uh Apparently, you actually, at that point, Crowdsourcer was getting these, like, people playing games to do some tasks for, I guess, like, game currency, which I find kind of uh, fascinating. So, yeah, was that actually a thing for a while? Yeah, it was. And I, I, I you know, I thought it was a... Um an interesting idea because, you know, like some of the stuff that you do in games to like kind of get, you know, points in the game or like currency in the game, like really seems like it has no benefit Just sort of like grinding on, um, on stuff. It seemed like, well, at least you could get like, you know, latable data from that. So that, that seemed exciting at the moment. I think over time the task got more complicated. Um, and that, you know, that didn't like, you know, work as well, but yeah, there was like a moment where we were collecting a lot of data, um, through games. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's a fun, fun concept. And something I found interesting too is um, you published a couple of papers, uh, what, like 2009, 2010, uh, so while working at Crowdflower. So some of these papers include crowdsourcing for search evalu- uh, evaluation. Um, and then there's also scalable crisis relief, crowdsourced SMS translation and categorization. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I wonder what was your kind of motivation to, while working for a company, also to do some of this publication at you know academic conferences. Well, I think like you know, machine learning always has an academic um, heritage, right? And so people care about. Um, publications and, and, you know, that was, that was my background too. And so, you know, we wanted to be um, helpful and we also wanted to kind of show people, you know, like what we're doing and show them that, you know, experiments kind of backed up the, the strategies that we were using. So um, yeah, we did, we, you know, we published some papers and, and, you know, there's like a whole dialogue around, um, you know, how to get high quality data out of um, big groups of people, which I think in the end, what I would say is that, um, I think academics really want it to be a stats question. Like, it, like, like I think, you know, there's like, you know, everyone comes from ML and they think like, oh, you know, we can use different, like more complicated statistical methods to try to figure out like, you know, what, who's like labeling well, who's labeling badly. And I think at the end of the day, it's much more of a UI question. I think like so a lot of the work has like moved more towards like HCI um, departments. And I think that's actually the right, um, place where it it should live because you know you think that the errors are going to be like mostly uncorrelated and you can sort of use like multiple labels and things like that to figure out who's doing a good job but the truth is the errors are actually incredibly correlated so if that is one thing i learned from like you know labeling probably more data sets than anyone out there um it's that the the correlated error is like the really hard problem uh, to solve and it's kind of everywhere hmm yeah, yeah, it is still very much a real problem, and there are people working on it and papers on it, so that makes sense. Um, another thing that I was curious about is, so you you started this company around 2007, and you know, obviously AI hype didn't kick off until at least 2010, maybe even a few years after that, as far as like uh, you know, in industry. Um, so how was it hard to convince people this was a problem that actually, you know, was important uh, or did people understand that, you know, industry you would need help with uh, annotation or things like that? I know it was incredibly hard <laughs> to convince people. I mean, I probably pitched like 60 investors before, you know, anyone was interested in investing. And, um, you know, I got a lot of advice to sort of take the AI part like out of the pitch, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, like when everybody's got the .ai domain, um, you know, for most of the time that I was running um, Crowdflower, you know, people were like, you know, machine learning, that sounds like a science experiment. That doesn't <laughs> at all. Um, but, um, you know, there's, you know, being early is um, a little bit fun and mostly painful. Yeah, but in hindsight... In hindsight... Know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Like uh, mid twenty ten, you would just bump, like, add AI to your name to get some uh, investor money. And but when you were working on it, you need to remove AI <laughs> to get any money. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So you worked at this company for um, 
a while. I think it was around a decade. Um, and I'm curious if, I don't know if there's any secrets, but um, could you give some examples of, I don't know, some interesting or cool or memorable cases or types of things that people used the tool for? Well, it's funny. I feel like now, you know, every application I see is like incredibly um, cool. And But back then we had to kind of like search um, for them. Like I remember um, there was a company that was um, building an AI around detecting like ear infections in kids. They had like a lot of medical images um, and uh, they were like automatically seeing if there's an ear infection. Um, there's another company that was doing um, garbage collection. And so they were trying to see like how full is like a garbage can from cameras they put inside the can, which is a like, pretty easy, um, you know, vision task, but I guess pretty meaningful because otherwise you just pick up the garbage can like on a weekly basis as opposed to like when it's actually um, full. The sort of like biggest stuff back then was more around like text um, processing in, in various forms. But then, you know, the shock to the industry happened when um, autonomous vehicles came along and suddenly we started to see like a ton of interest in, you know, like labeling massive numbers of images with like, you know, are there pedestrians in there, are there cars in there? And that, that's what ended up, you know, like really accelerating the company into a good acquisition. Yeah. And that actually brings up a question for me, which is, I guess in academia, you know, the big shock wave for AI was, is commonly said to be, CDPR, ImageNet, AlexNet, you know, 2012. Um, and I wonder, you were at that point in industry. And yeah, when was there a shockwave at all? <laughs> I, I assume not. So when did sort of excitement around deep learning and AI transition over from academia to, to industry? Yeah, it was definitely significantly later. Um, like you, you know, you were saying like adding AI to your startup name in 2010 would help you get funding, but I don't think it would actually. I think 2010, yeah, like, in 2010, 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, yeah. I mean, I remember it was like 2015, 2016 that we started to see like big use from car companies, you know, and that was like, um, wow, this is really interesting. Like this, this must be working at the volumes that, um, you know, people were starting to collect data, but even then it was like hard to do, right? Like, I think like, you know, like when ImageNet, um, you know, came out and then like AlexNet was starting to work, it was still like very hard to like train a model, um, in that way and unclear how it would work at scale. And so I think it took industry a little while, um, to actually make it work. And I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was around 2015, 2016, it started to take off. And then like 2018, it was like in full, mm. full, full swing. Yeah, until now we have calmed down a bit, but definitely last few years. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we're going back up of GPT three and so on. So it's just another wave yeah. uh, we're coming upon. Um, yeah, it, there's a funny tidbit on AlexNet where actually a lot of it was uh, one of the co-authors. I'm not sure if it was Alex uh, or or another one, but they had to implement the kernels for the CNN and CUDA by hand, right? You didn't have all these frameworks back then. So a lot of it was just, you know, uh, it was a really good programmer who could make it work on a GPU. Yeah. So at, at what point did you personally start getting excited about deep learning um, as a thing and kind of aware of it, I guess? Well, you know, I was aware of it for a while and I wasn't sure if it was like, hype at first because, you know, there's, there's a real 
pattern in ML of people saying, you know, I have this new algorithm that works a lot better and it like almost never does. Right. And so mm-hmm. like, I had sort of seen all these companies come along. It's like, Hey, we have this new way of like training a model that's like complicated and it works better. And like, there's always like a catch. Right. And so, you know, I was definitely trained to be skeptical of it. I think the first thing I saw, I was good friends with the Kaggle um, CEO. And I think he had a real sense for like what was working. Cause it was like, you know, when it started winning Kaggle competitions, it was like, wow, okay, this thing must be, you know, for real. Cause they did, did a really good job of being rigorous about that, that stuff. Um, and then the thing that was like a real shock to me was actually that, um, when for me personally, when it won at go, I was, I was, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, you know, I really need to like understand this. Um, more deeply, which is kind of late. Um, I can't remember what year, like Lisa at all. 2016. Yeah. I mean, I, I like really tracked that stuff carefully. I was really into it. You know, I remember watching, um, watching it win and I just could not believe, um, you know, how quickly that, that got better and, and worked. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was a big uh, event in general that made a lot of people aware. Maybe that was, like there was some press about DeepMind in 2013 and so on, but I think AlphaGo was kind of the first big, you know, milestone maybe that really uh, got famous. Yeah. So uh, okay, so you you got inspired and impressed by AlphaGo, and then um, did that sort of start the process of you know that eventually led you to. Uh, uh, found weights and biases? Did you just sort of start playing with deep learning and, and find that you need this, uh, you know, infrastructure of tracking and, and developer tooling? Yeah, I kind of did. I mean, there's actually kind of two important things that happened for me um, after that. Um, so one thing that happened was I um, I convinced OpenAI to let me kind of hang around there and be like an unpaid intern. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, I was really like, I remember when I was first graduating and, um, you know, going into industry, there were like kind of older people around that were like, you know, they were kind of used to rule-based systems and they were like out of date. And I was really judgmental of them mm-hmm. at the time, you know, cause it was like their stuff, obviously they're just like wrong about a lot of stuff. And like, you know, this, the field moves fast. And then I kind of found myself, I've been like running a company for a while and sort of learned management skills, but I realized like, I actually don't know, um, how to train like a, you know, a deep network and neural nets weren't even cool when I was in school. So I made one, but like, I could hardly remember, mm-hmm. you know, how it worked. Um, and convolutional neural net, I'd never done it, you know? And so, um, you know, I, I hung around opening up well, and then actually it's funny, me and the, um, I was talking with the streamlit founder, who's basically my age. And, um, we did a couple offsites together where, um, we were like, we just want to build this stuff from scratch in, um, NumPy. So we want to build a convnet and we want to build like an LSTM, um, and we actually did those together. And I think it was kind of through that, that he part, that was definitely part of where he got the idea for, um, Streamlight. He started it like just after that. And mm-hmm. I think I just was just thinking about like weights and biases, but when you do that, I think like, especially kind of coming back into the industry after being, you know, not training models for 10 years, you know, you're kind of like, wait a second, like the tooling has actually gotten worse, right? Because, you know, like, you know, when you're, when you're training, um, you know, boosted trees, you can do it on kind of normal hardware. So like the stack is kind of normal and, and scikit-learn is such a great like library for so many things. But then I think when things switch to a GPU, it just breaks so many assumptions 
that um that it kind of causes you to like run into all these problems right like you know i remember like getting like cuda errors and like linker errors and it's just like man you know like like i i haven't like thought about this in like a long time you know and and um i'm not like it's it's so hard to like debug it and like deal with it i think that it like i think maybe having that like snapshot of like training models you know once and then like 10 years later seeing like how bad the state of the tooling was kind of inspired me to start a company around um tooling for for machine learning yeah yeah it makes sense i think definitely you know and nowadays it's pretty you know there's a lot of progress it's pretty easy to get into it with pytorch and keras but yeah 2016 2017 around that period even later yeah there, there are a lot of issues and yeah i found it pretty interesting um like again i creep you know, on everyone I interview and, and see what I can find on the internet. And so going to your GitHub uh, is kind of fun because, you know, there's, um, you know, some projects that are random. And then around 2019, there's a lot of these little projects uh, that involve machine learning. Uh, one of them is this like little robot project for controlling kind of this four wheel little robot with sonar and cameras. Oh yeah. Cool. You found that? <laughs> awesome. I did. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun photo you have, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, these little robots of eyes. Uh, yeah. So it seems like you really went in, you know, um, going in and, um, like getting hands on to build these things and, and, you know, <laughs> building robots. So yeah. Did you just try to implement stuff that you found was cool and, kind of in that way understood the process. Yeah. I mean, I'm someone that really learns by doing and, um, you know, it's fun for me to do something like physical and, and, and tactile. And so like making some vision algorithms and putting them on, um, a raspberry Pi was like, you know, some of my favorite times in my life. I mean, I, um, it was funny back then, you know, even like installing TensorFlow on a raspberry Pi was like a huge, um, undertaking, but actually there's this guy, Pete Warden, um, who was like being really helpful in the forums. And then I, um, I was asking all these questions and then I, I was like actually CEO of, of Crowdflower at the time. And I remember mm -hmm. I like, um, I like called him up and, and, uh, it turned out that he was the guy at Google who was doing the, um, TensorFlow, like in a crazy <laughs> <laughs> but he was just like helpful guy. And then it turned out he like lived on the street from me, which is like the cool thing about like living in San Francisco. So he actually like came over and gave me like really hands-on tech support and like taught me like a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know that wasn't even like related to ML. He's just like a really smart, like helpful like tinker. And so um I think that got me super inspired to make more robots. Wow, that that is a fun story, yeah. Um, and you also have, uh, yeah, again, looking at your uh, GitHub, uh, like a whole like little class with implementations, uh, you know, these projects that you built, uh, mm -hmm. and and videos as well, uh, which I found interesting. So, did creating that class also was that part of your sort of self study? Yeah. You know, it's funny. So I, I really like to have forcing functions to force yeah. me to learn stuff. And, um, one of the things that I did was, was actually, I was, I started giving public classes to, um, engineers to kind of teach them about, um, machine learning and deep learning. And they got like really, really popular. Um, oh. and so, 
um, it was, it was super fun. It was actually like kind of stressful too, because you know, so many people started, um, you know, coming to them. I mean, I think now there's like a real culture of like tons of like, you know, videos on deep learning. They're so much better than the ones that I was doing, but at the time no one was really doing it. And it's kind of this mix of like, people want to know the theory and the math and also how to like get started and set up. And, um, and so, yeah, so I was making a lot of, um, classes back then, which I think also really informed, um, you know, weights and biases. Cause it's sort of like, you know, I, I would use early versions of weights and biases in the class and there's nothing like having, like watching a hundred people try to install your, um, software. <laughs> really like teaching to make the installation process easier, you know, you just sort uh, of, and you're like kind of standing there as like a teacher, like, Oh shit. You know, like, I hope, um, you know, I hope this like works for everyone. And then the class kind of stops if anyone gets like, you know, mm-hmm. stuck. So yeah, I think that, uh, that, that process really like helped us in the early days, um, to, to make sure that it was usable. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's, that's a fun way to test your, uh, beta or early versions, just like make your students use it. Uh, yeah, yeah that's amusing. So yeah, let's get into, uh, weights and biases, uh, which is, um, eventually the company you founded and are still running, um, so first up, like, what is it? What what does weights and biases uh, provide? Well, look, I mean, our our mission since the beginning is to make great tools for people doing machine learning, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we want to do is is help um, people that are trying to build and deploy machine learning models actually be successful in building and deploying, um, machine learning models. And so that's kind of the first principle is we sort of look at like where the pain points are and try to solve them. It's pretty simple, but I like that method a lot better than, um, some of the more like clever approaches that like might work well in like a business school case study or like a VC pitch. I think just sort of saying like, you know, what is actually going on where people are getting stuck and let's try to Mm -hmm. like that with software, um, has always been, our approach. And, and the place we started was actually, um, you know, like what's called now experiment tracking and is in like every, you know, investor slide and ML workflow is like a step, but before we started building it, it was not a step. So it was uh, always hacked together for every project with like your own custom set of subfolders and tensor board metrics. Yeah, and so exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then like I had done that in grad school too, right? Like you try all these things and you, you know, you keep a big list of the stuff you tried, like a notebook and, you know, write down like what happened and I'm pretty disorganized. And so, you know, I would always like forget and like, you know, you, you write down like the hyperparameters that you think matter, but like you know, there's like something else. And like, you know, then you find out that your code has a bug and you wonder like how long it had that bug and like how many things you tried are like invalidated. Um, and so this is like a problem like near to my heart, right. You know, it's sort of like, um, just keeping track of like all the things that you did. Um, yeah, and in machine research, right, uh, you need often a lot of things to track, right? You have like 12 different models with ablations and baselines and, and around multiple seeds and so on. So especially for machine learning, there's a lot of need to keep track of hyperparameters and different iterations and experiments, right? Yeah. And if you've ever tried to like reproduce a paper, you know, they have that like table that's like be like 10 things you, that they tried and like what the accuracy was or what the you know score was by whatever metric they care about. But you know, they tried like a thousand other things. Right. And then like, yeah. you know, when your result is inevitably like different than what the paper does, you don't know, like it's never exactly specified enough to really know if you did it the same way as the, um, you know, the paper author. So like, 
our our like initial idea there was to just sort of make it really easy to track stuff passively. Like I think um, I think reproducibility really is more of a spectrum than people give it credit for. Like literally getting like the exact same like bytes in a model, I think might require like too many um, you know constraints. But I think if you can like just like passively keep track of like um, the Git SHA, you know, like the the Git state. And, and like every model run, that's actually like really valuable, you know, just that. Right. And then, you know, if you can track like what the input parameters were and the output parameters, that's actually like really valuable too. But, you know, you kind of need people to have reasons to start using it. So, you know, we built in like a lot of visualizations. So people get like, um, you know, power, like right out of the box at like the first time they do something. Um, but then over time, I think it's the reproducibility that makes experiment tracking, um, you know, super powerful. And then I think like a lot of people don't know this because that's like, you know, what we did first and, you know, probably what we're best known for, but we've built a lot of stuff, um, you know, since then, like we have, uh, um, you know, a hyperparameter um, search um, product that you know, loved and well used, um, you know, maybe like, you know, we, we, we've had thousands of people use it every day. And then, you know, we have um, uh, like a data set and model tracking system that, you know, is also like heavily used by, you know, many, many companies at, at scale and, um, tables, which is becoming kind of like a data exploration, um, thing. And we, we recently, um, you know, launched a model registry, um, like a month or two ago into, um, uh, you know, general availability. And so, um, there's like a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff there and it's kind of follows where the, the pain points are for people like working in, in machine learning. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, where would you say the the state has gotten to over these last two years? The state of tooling for machine learning development. Uh, you cite your inspiration partially with this notion that Andre Kapafi described machine learning as a new kind of programming that needs a reinvented ID, and so these like tooling. Uh, the tooling for development wasn't there when you started. Is it more there or there's still a lot of missing components, would you say? Well, it's funny. It's um, when I, when I started with some biases and it wasn't that long ago that I started it. Um, a lot of VCs thought I was too early again. They're like, Lucas, you're the guy that's like always too early. <laughs> and then, and, and I feel like, not that long after I started Weights and Biases, the space just got like incredibly hot. Like when I started Weights and Biases, I was like, you know, this will be really fun. I'm really passionate about it. I'm like down to spend, you know, the next 20 years of my life um, doing this. But I don't know that this is like really good timing. I might be the guy that's like too early again. I remember, you know, my wife was like, you know, really like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, it seems like you're too early. And then, and then it got like super, super hot. And I remember, um, uh, Clemens, this, uh, uh, PM at, um, uh, Databricks wrote an article, like why your machine learning tools startup will fail, <laughs> you know? And it's like, you've got <laughs> reasons about like, you know, it's like, it's like it kind of like the hype cycle, like all happened where like, you know, tons of money flowed in and then people were like, well, actually maybe this is like a bad idea. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I think lots and lots of people are trying like every possible take because also the financing environment's been very good. So like, you know, lots of money's flowed in. A lot of people working on internal tools at, at places, um, you know, kind of spun out into their own startups like crazy, right? And so you see like, um, you know, kind of every possible take on ML tools out there. But I think like the reality is like most of these startups will fail. 
um, and some will succeed, um, you know, wildly, but I don't think like things have really been nailed yet. Right. There's still like a lot of pain, but you know, people need to be like a little bit patient too. Right. Like, you know, identifying the problem and then fixing it is like always hard, but it's especially hard in the ML space when the target is like moving so fast. Right. Like, you know, the, even like the, the frameworks, you know, the, the, when we started TensorFlow was looked like the runaway winner. PyTorch is like this upstart. Now we see way more PyTorch than TensorFlow. And we see like Jax, you know, like coming along and sort of like, you know, small percentage of users, but, um, you know, growing super fast and, uh, you know, kind of in that space, it's like keeping up with that is, um, is, is really tough. But bottom line is like, you know, most companies are doing a lot of stuff, um, in-house still. And when I see that, I see an opportunity to, you know, make something better for everyone versus like having everyone, you know, build their one-off system. But of course it has to be a lot better before a company is going to be willing to, you know, take their homegrown thing and, and, um, switch over to, to your tool. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, it's interesting, I guess. Nowadays, prompt engineering is a hot thing. So I guess you will, <laughs> you can add a feature for prompt engineers to do their uh, development. Totally. Um, yeah, so that's really exciting. And uh, for anyone, you know, getting into uh, machine learning or already doing machine learning, uh, I would encourage you to check out Waste and Bias. It's really simple to get started with. I've played around with it. Uh, I'm not like a diehard user, but I like it. So we'll have a link uh, in the description as usual. So moving a little outside of, of uh, ways and biases, um, what have you been excited about in AI lately or, or just thinking about in terms of what's happening? Well, look, I mean, I think prompt engineering is really interesting. I think that, you know, the, the large language models and like Dolly and these things um, are super, super interesting you know, to me, I mean, it's like, it's really interesting the way, like everything's kind of consolidated around, um, you know, transformers and that architecture is so simple. It's interesting that like all these fields where everyone was kind of building their own, you know, custom stuff seems to, you know, be in the large part subsumed by this one technique that feels like slightly arbitrary to me. I mean, we tell ourselves these stories about like, you know, the attention mechanism, but so, okay. So yeah, so, so I'm really interested in transformers. I think it's, you know, it's a really interesting, um, technique, but it doesn't seem like the end of, um, you know, like improving kind of general purpose techniques. I think prompt engineering is like incredibly cool and it seems like it's here to stay in some, you know, shape or form. So I've been thinking about like, you know, how do you actually make life good for someone that's trying to do, um, you know, prompt engineering. And I just think you have to be, an incredibly skeptical person to not be enamored with um, how well Dolly works. I mean, it's just amazing that you can like. Dolly two is you know Dolly one. Okay, that was way better than Gans, but Dolly two is like every time I'm still still blows my mind. And that's hard for people who've been around deep learning for a long time. Right. Totally. I mean, I guess it may be in the the sort of less sexy, but kind of. Um, category of stuff I really love it, like, um, you know, I think the, the medical applications and the like chemistry applications seem like really meaningful and, and powerful to me. Like, I mean, we work with so many of the, um, you know, kind of medical application pharma, um, companies. And I think that that's the kind of thing where, you know, deep learning makes a ton of sense. I mean, like, you know, our brains aren't wired to do that stuff 
well. Unlike like self-driving, like, you know, our brains are kind of wired to to drive without crashing into stuff, but they're not wired to like, you know, look under a microscope at a gigantic image and, you know, make some subtle um, point of view on like whether the person has like a bad form of cancer or not. Right. And so I, I sort of feel like that is about to um, explode. And um, that's where we see like maybe the biggest growth in, in applications at weights and biases, which gets me super excited. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that. I think, um, you know, large language models, foundation models are definitely the most kind of mind blowing, exciting thing. But at the same time, I keep track of AI news quite closely. And on that front, you, we are seeing more and more sort of FDA clearances and, uh, things actually going into practice in a lot of things like there's like dental applications, uh, you know, eye inspection, all sorts of specific little various diseases. It's just, you know, huge. So I think that it does merit excitement for sure. Totally. And uh, yeah, to finish up, uh, we like to, uh, you know, remind ourselves that life isn't just about AI. So uh, do you have any other fun hobbies or interests that you, um, you know, spend your time doing when you're not tinkering with machine learning models? Um, well, I do have a little daughter and I mean, I love, um, I love playing with her and actually watching her learn is like incredibly cool. and. Um, compelling and um you know we like building um kits together so I'm, I'm still a fan of um you know building little little robots not necessarily like machine learning powered but just um you know it's so satisfying to like you know put together like a you know hexapod walker or like um you know just something like physical and and watch it um move around is is something i'm a, a huge fan of Oh, that's super fun. Yeah, I wish I wish I had more time to go back to tinkering of microcontrollers and stuff like that. That was a great pastime in undergrad. Totally. Alrighty, well, I think with that we'll close it out. Again, we'll have links to all that stuff in the description. Uh, thanks, Lucas, for joining the podcast. Awesome. Thanks for your time. That was fun. If you've enjoyed this interview, uh, please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. It's available everywhere. And if you're subscribed, then uh, maybe share this with your friends or other people interested in AI. Or even go ahead and review it on Apple Podcasts. We do not have that many reviews. We'd love to hear your feedback. But uh, all that aside, the main thing is please do keep tuning in. We're going to have a lot of uh, interesting interviews coming up. So keep listening and uh, yeah, thank you for listening to this one.